Well, you can grab a seat. I'm really brave. I'm a Gryffindor. I'm ambitious. I'm a Slytherin. I'm really smart. I'm a Ravenclaw. I'm a Hufflepuff. You need to say something first? Just say what your thing is. Whatever your house is about. I'm a Hufflepuff. I can't digest lactose. I'm a Hufflepuff. That's not a skill. Who has two thumbs and is a Hufflepuff? I'm a Hufflepuff. Ugh, you can't even tell a joke right. My name is sewn into all of my clothes. Really? One time, I found the room of requirement. It was just full of mouthwash. I can touch my tongue to my nose. Oh, come on. I'm afraid of ghosts. And sheets with holes in them. And regular sheets. One time I saw a bird. Ugh. One time I opened a jar up all by myself. I cut my hand up real bad. Hufflepuff! I'm a Hufflepuff! You know, we've all had that moment where we've tried to imagine which Hogwarts class or house would I be in, right? Hopefully you didn't choose Hufflepuff because, you know, they're the worst. Uh, But maybe, maybe uh, you thought, oh, no, I think I would fit in this category. I would fit there. Or maybe we've had that moment where we imagine, you know, which which pro sports team would I play for? Would it be those Patriots? Would it be those... Other ones, like, would I change? Cowboys? Would I be a cowboy, right? We, we try to imagine where, where would I fit in, in that sort of system? Which superhero would I really want to be, right? Like, which team would I really want to be a part of? Would I want to be the dark, gloomy Batman universe? Or would I want to be the happy, like, little talking raccoon guy? Like, what do I want to do in that? Where do I want to fit? We've had that moment where we imagine, man, where would I fit? fit? What would I be? What identity would I adopt? Why? Because we've seen the attributes or the accomplishments of people in those positions, and it's attractive, right? It's something that we we are drawn to, that, that we like. And so we imagine either in our minds or we pursue in our actual lives those certain identities. And, and you know, the truth is, the reality, to burst your bubble, uh, we're never really going to be that quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys who fights crime on the side as Batman ever and is also a Gryffindor, right? Like, that's not going to happen. Like, you're not going to find yourself in that position. You're not going to find yourself with that identity. But we do find ourselves chasing after. We find ourselves adopting identities of being a counselor at that camp, right? Oh, if only, or, or an active member of that organization, or, or suddenly we find ourselves being an intern or a prospective employee of that company. We find ourselves chasing after and pursuing and taking on these identities because we feel that in some way they, they make us better, right? In some way it's a step up. But the reality is, the truth is that all of those identities, they, they fade away. All of those identities will end or or they will fail to meet our expectations. We'll reach that pinnacle, we'll reach that role, and we'll realize, man, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And so it just sort of fades into the background and it kind of goes 
away. And so then what? What do we do when our very identity is over? This whole semester, we're studying the book of Hebrews. And we're walking through this book because it's all about who Jesus is and what he's done. And as we seek to understand that, as we try to wrap our minds around who Jesus is and what he's done, it's a little difficult for us to focus entirely on him because we're surrounded by a world that's telling us it's all about us. We're surrounded by a culture that's constantly telling us that we are the center of all creation, that we, in fact, deserve the best. And so because of that, we want to be the best. We want to know what's best. But the reality, what Hebrews tells us, is that no matter what anyone thinks or says or does, that Jesus is better. That's why we're looking at him. Because he's better. I mean, he's better than anything that this world has to offer. He's better than any identity we can adopt. We're in chapter two this morning of the book of Hebrews as we work our way through. And what we're going to see is the author telling us explicitly that there is a certain identity that Jesus himself adopted. There's an identity that he took on. And because of the identity that he adopted, he now is able to offer an identity to everyone who follows him. And what we'll see about that is it's better. What he offers is better. Because we're all adopting some sort of identity, right? We're all chasing after some sort of identity. Whether you're a believer or a non-believer, you have found yourself at some point wrapping yourself up in uh, maybe a role, right? And we talked about this a little bit last week of sort of that title that we pursue, but there's maybe a role that you decide that's who I am, right? Like I am that Christian, or I'm that leader in that organization or with that camp, or I'm that counselor, or I'm, I'm this executive staff member, or, or I'm this officer, or, or I'm over this thing, or I'm this intern, or, I, or whatever. And we find that role, we find that title, and we decide that's who I am. It's that section on your resume that's like, you know, extracurricular or like related activities, related experience that some of us haven't updated in a long time. So it still says like NJHS secretary. I don't know. I was trying to think of the lowest position. Secretary? I don't know. So we find ourselves though in those positions, right? Where we have that, that role. We're like, oh, I was a lifeguard that one summer. That's who I am, right? We find ourselves wrapping ourselves up in those different roles. Or maybe we find ourselves wrapping ourselves up, putting our identity in, not a role, but maybe a responsibility, Maybe we decide, well, I'm, I'm the busy guy, right? Like out of all of everyone in my house, out of all my roommates, I'm the busy one or I'm the stressed one. Everyone needs, just need to, everyone needs to realize that I am so stressed. <laughs> and I'm going to tell them. If they don't know, I'll tell, I'll tell them. Don't you worry. I will add that to my plate because that is important enough because everyone needs to know how busy I am. They need to know this responsibility. Or maybe you're the chill one. You're like, ah, oh, no, I'm fine. Don't you have like seven tests on Thursday? No, <laughs> Whatever, man. Let's watch Breaking Bad. Don't worry about it. Right? Like maybe we decide that's what I am. I, I'm going to wrap up my identity in this responsibility. I'm, I'm studying. Right? We have that mode, particularly towards the end of the semester, where someone's like, hey, can you? I'm studying. I'm studying. Right? And we're just, I'm studying. What do you mean you locked yourself? I'm studying. 
And we find ourselves wrapping ourselves up for putting our identity in that responsibility that we've been given. That's why uh, I love, even though I don't follow uh, professional football uh, very extensively, uh, I do know about the one-handed catch guy, right? I don't know his name. What is his name? That one. Yeah, so him. (laughs) Something about about, about Junior. Okay, so Junior, Junior has done lots of stuff probably, right? And he plays for the Giants, uh, and he does this great stuff, whatever. He's got this role. He's probably a receiver, I'm guessing, because he's receiving the ball in this picture. Uh, But he, in my mind, though, and in many people's minds, this is the one-handed catch guy, right? He's known for his responsibility. That's what his identity is put into. It's what he's wrapped up in is what did he do? What has he accomplished? Uh, or maybe uh, also in the football world, there's that one guy who was the shark in Katy Perry's halftime show, right? <laughs> and that's just who he or she, I don't know, he or she is. Their responsibility of being a shark, dancing and hitting himself in the face with these flippers. That's who he is. That's the identity is wrapped up in that responsibility. He, he or she will always be the left shark in Katy Perry's halftime Super Bowl show. That's just what it is, man. That's just the way life goes. Our identities are wrapped up maybe in a role, maybe it's wrapped up in a responsibility, or sometimes we find our identities placed in a relationship, right? Sometimes a romantic relationship, meaning we are dating or we are not dating, and we put our identity in that fact. Some of us really want to be in one of those two camps. We decide, I need to be dating. And if we're not, if someone asks us, hey, are you dating? We say, no. Uh. <laughs> why? Wait, wait, why? Who, 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 who told you? Like, right? And we, like, we look around. Why? Because we want to fill that gap. We want to have our identity in the fact that we are dating someone. Is it someone back? No? Oh, okay. And we want to know. We want to have that identity. Or maybe we, on the flip side, put our identity into the fact that we're not dating anyone. And you ask them, are you dating anyone? They say, no. And I'll tell you why. (laughs) You buckle up. (laughs) I'm dating me right now. And they go into this long thing. Why? Why? Because their identity is wrapped up in a relationship. Maybe it's not a romantic relationship. Maybe it's a family relationship. We find ourselves putting our identity in the fact that we are this type of son, or we're this type of daughter, or we're this kind of cool brother, or we're this kind of cool sister. We want to find ourselves in those roles. We want to put our identity in the fact that, man, I'm a, I'm a great kid, or I'm a, I'm a great cousin or brother, whatever it is. We pride ourselves. We put our identity in the fact that maybe we're mom and dad's favorite son or favorite daughter. This is my daughter, and she's my favorite daughter. Her name is Charlotte, and she's great. And, and I know I've shown a picture of her every week because I'm a mom, and this is my Instagram. Uh, but we, she is my favorite daughter for now. If I have another daughter, I don't know. Like, we'll have to... We'll have to wait and see (laughs) who's the best. But her identity is not wrapped up in that, or her identity could become wrapped up in that. Some of us, we find ourselves putting our identity into that role or that responsibility or that relationship. But like I said, the problem is that all of those identities will fade away. All of those identities will break down. Those relationships will end. Those responsibilities will go away. That role will cease to exist or will move out of that phase 
of our lives. And so when we find ourselves without an identity, what do we do? Generally, we decide, well, I've got to find a new identity, right? We, I've got to search for something else. And we're generally not that bummed about it, right? We really don't think twice about that because for us, our identity is always answering that question. What do I want to be, right? What do I want? Who do I want to become? What do I want to be when I grow up? What do I want out of life? And we are so happy, honestly, to circle back and ask that question over and over and over again. Take those personality quizzes or, or do that gift survey or, or take that, find out which princess we are in the Disney universe, right? And we want to find out those things about ourselves. Why? Because we love to think about ourselves. Because we love to search those depths and think, who, who do I want to be? What do I want? What do I want out of life? And when we find an answer, when we find an identity that somehow improves our standing, we decide that's, that's what I want. Right? When we find ourselves attracted to a certain identity, to certain attributes or accomplishments, we say, yeah, that's the identity that I want. That's what I want to be. This identity that somehow improves my standing because I, I look better or I feel better when I have it. When I put it on, I, I look better, I feel better. It's a step up in some way. And so we're caught in this cycle where we adopt this identity. We think, oh man, this, this will help me out. This will be better. But it, it ends, right? Maybe it fails to meet our expectations or, or maybe it just ceases to exist. And we think, well, I, I need a new one. So we go back and we find a new one and, and over and over and over and over and over and over again. We're constantly shifting in our identity, we're constantly shifting where we're putting our self-worth, our self-value, our satisfaction. Is that really what we want out of life? Is that really what we want to be? People who are constantly just so inward focused, constantly just worrying about what I need, what I want. Is that how Christians are called to live? Because when we look at Christ, we see something completely different. In fact, it's, it's the opposite almost. When we look at Christ, what we don't see is someone who thinks, okay, what, what's an identity that can improve me, right? Like what's, what's a step up? Instead, when we look at Christ, his identity that he took on goes in the complete opposite direction. In chapter two, starting in verse five, the author explains to us that it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. What are we seeing? The author of Hebrews Starts off, again, kind of throwing back to last week. He starts off with another dig at angels. Right? It comes a little bit out of nowhere if you weren't here last week. But basically, uh, what we saw last week as we walked through the first chapter is the author is having to describe why Jesus, how Jesus is better than any idol or rival God you can construct in your life. And a very popular idol at that time for this audience of Jewish believers in the early 60s AD, one of their popular idols was an angel or angels. 
they believed that angels would rule in the world to come. And so they wanted to worship and lift up and sing the praises of angels. And so the author is kind of still on that note. And he says, look, 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 it's, it's not about angels. He says, instead, what's it about? He says, well, it's been testified somewhere. In other words, he's quoting uh, Psalm 8. And he uses this really weird language where it sounds like he's kind of like unsure. He's like, well, somebody said this thing somewhere, right? It sounds like he's sort of uncertain, but he's not, right? He quotes it word for word. You don't just say like, well, I think, I think someone said full score and 20, and then you like read off the whole Gettysburg Address. Like you don't, that's not a thing. Like he knows where it's coming from, but this is very intentional of the author. He does this through the whole book where he quotes Old Testament scripture, but he doesn't attribute it to the author. He doesn't say, as you know, David once said, or he doesn't say, as you know, Moses said. Instead, a lot of times he uses this kind of language where he's like, someone said, or it was testified somewhere. Why? Because he's bringing the emphasis off of the human writer and onto the true author, which is God. He's showing over and over and over again, these are God's words, not people's. And so God can use these words in any way he sees fit. And God is so marvelous. God is so above everything that we know and understand that he could write something like this, which had an immediate context in David's day, talking about humanity in general, right? Where he says, man, what is man? What is humanity? In other words, you're mindful of of people, the son of man. You, You care for for him. David is speaking specifically about humanities. Like it's amazing that we are, are lower than the angels. In other words, we are less prestigious. We look much more pitiful than angels. And yet, yet one day David knew that God would elevate humanity to a whole nother level. That we would one day be victorious with him, ruling over all creation. That was David's context. And the author of Hebrews says, yeah, that's true. But he keeps going and he says, the reality is that Lord, the Lord meant this not only to talk about humanity, but he's speaking about Jesus Christ. He says, this person, we'll read it here in a minute, this person, namely Jesus Christ, who was made for a little while lower than the angels. He says, we look at Jesus Christ and we realize, wow, this man or this, this God he took on the identity of a man. He made himself for a little while lower than the angels. That is not a step up. That is a step down, very much so. But one day, everything will be in subjection under him. And the author keeps going. If we read verse 9, he would say, now, I know that we don't really see that right now. He says, you know, I have, we, the reality is we look out and we're like, that doesn't look like everything's in subjection to Jesus Christ. Because that's the way our world is, right? We look out at our world and we're like, no, things are still pretty messed up. That's why we still have stuff like this happening. In Australia, look at it. Look a little bit closer. What is, what is that? You see it? Inside the shoe. It's a snake, okay? So this is... This is a thing that still happens, right? We live in a world, we live in a creation, uh, in a place. Uh, well, this is Australia, so we don't live there, thank goodness. But Australians live in a place where you can find some sort of, I'm sure, super deadly snake inside of your shoe that's out on the 
gutter or something. I don't know. But we, we live in a world that, man, it's still broken, right? We, we look out at society. We look out at the things that are happening in creation. We say, no, this is, this is definitely not in subjection to Jesus Christ. We see it. We see death and we see suffering and we see racism and we see violence. We see abuse. We see disease. And we say, yeah, this, this isn't right. And the author gives us that. He says, yeah, it's, it's not. It's not in subjection yet. He says, all these things aren't yet under his feet. We can't see it, but it's coming. It's coming. Because Jesus Christ didn't just make himself a man. In fact, he made himself into a man who went another step further. He stepped down into humanity. He stepped out of heaven and onto earth into that role of, hu- of human, of man, who then as Philippians tells us, emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Christ didn't just step outside of heaven onto earth to become a lowly man for a little while lower than the angels. Instead, he emptied himself. Literally meaning he puts aside his own interests, his own desires, and he humbles himself to the point, to the the most humble of points, which is death. A horrific death at that. He steps out into this world and dies. He adopts the identity of a dead man. That was his identity. Why? Why? Why would he step into that role? Why would he accept those responsibilities? Why would he willingly put himself in that relationship as one who steps into a world that he has rightful rule over and yet he dies? Why? There are a lot of reasons. There's so much truth. There are literally dozens and probably hundreds of books written on this very subject. Why did Christ die? What are all the reasons that we can think of? But the author of Hebrews points out two particular reasons, two big inspirations behind that identity that he took on. It says, we see him for who a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, right? So he's saying this is pertaining not just to me, this is pertaining to Jesus Christ crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Why did Jesus die? Why did he adopt that identity of a dead guy? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Why did he step into that role? He shared in our death so that we might share in his life. First and foremost, he died. He adopted that identity to bring salvation. First and foremost, he adopted that identity to bring salvation. He shared in our death so we can share in his life. And it's a beautiful thing because he used death itself to destroy the power of death. 
right? It's like the ultimate, what was that? The ultimate moment where you're like, where's the replay? This is that moment where he used this almost perfect irony. He, through death, destroyed the one who has power over death. He used death itself to defeat the one who used death to terrify us, to scare us into submission, to scare us into slavery. This is exactly what James Naismith went through. James Naismith, who in 1891 invented the game of basketball. That's why he's holding a giant basket and a volleyball. James Naismith invented basketball, came up with the rules, wrote the basketball Bible's 13 rules, very first thing uh, that was ever written about basketball, 1891. It got so popular so fast that he started it in 1891. By 1898, it was already a collegiate sport that universities were creating teams and competing against each other. By 1898, it was a collegiate sport. And so naturally, someone said, wow, we should get James to coach our team, right? That makes sense. He invented the stinking game. Talk about bringing in a ringer. No one's going to stand a chance against the king, the lord of basketball himself, James. Look at that (laughs) stance, I guess. Look at that. You can't beat that guy. So... The University of Kentucky said, all right, James, we want you for us. And so they bring him in, and he's the head coach of their basketball team. And James Naismith has a record. He holds this incredible record at the University of Kentucky for being the only coach in all of their history to have a losing record as a coach. Or Kentucky or Kansas, I don't know. What's UK? What's University Kentucky? Okay, good. I got it. So he's the only one in all their history to be a coach with a losing record. His final record as a head coach was 55 wins, 60 losses. Only coach. Why? Because all these other people saw what he had done. They saw this creation. They took this beautiful idea of basketball and they said, I will crush the Lord with his own devices, right? They did this. And so they went in, they improvised, and they created these things and they defeated him. He must have been kicking himself in the bespeckled face every single game because he's the inventor of basketball and someone, they beat him at basketball. It's his baby, right? And this is what he made. This is who he is. And yet they defeated him in basketball. That's what Jesus Christ has accomplished. On our behalf, he used death to defeat death. What we'll read here in a minute is that Jesus Christ became the propitiation through death. His death made him a propitiation for our sins. What that means is that he, the word propitiation sums up kind of two ideas. That means that he appeased someone who was wronged. And more than that, he then brings that wronged party and the one who committed the wrong into a reconciled relationship, into right standing with one another. That's what a propitiation is. Because Jesus Christ died, he paid that wage of sin, which is death. Because we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And our sin means that something must die. We, in particular, need to die. That's the wage, that's the cost of our sin. And yet Jesus Christ knew no sin, committed no sin, and yet he became sin. In other words, he took on our sins when he died on that cross to become a propitiation, to release our debt 
to forgive us, but more than that, to bring us into right standing with the God that we sinned against, to bring us into that perfect, reconciled relationship. We're more than forgiven. We are made righteous. And he did it all through death. And through that death, he's saved us. He has brought salvation. And because he rose again three days later, his resurrection defeats the fear of death. That's why it says these people have been released from a fear of death that led us into slavery. Because why? Because Christ defeated death. He rose again. We don't have to fear death. We as believers do not have to fear death because there's something on the other side. There's life. There's hope. There's goodness. And there's rest. That's what we have to look forward to. So when we see what Christ has done, oh my goodness, it should blow our minds. But he didn't just die to bring salvation. In fact, the author keeps going. He says that would be, I mean, incredible enough. But because of his death, because of the fact that he adopted the identity of a man who died, he adopted the identity of a dead guy. Not only did he bring salvation, but he is able now to bring service. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In other words, he shared in our humanity so that we can share in his empathy. Christianity is the only religion. We are the only people in all of creation to claim to follow an empathetic God. At which point some of you are asking, well, what is empathy? So what is empathy and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. (laughs) Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, climb down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, it's bad, uh-huh. Uh, no, you want a sandwich? Um, Empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. We have a God who became, man, we follow Jesus Christ, who stepped out of heaven onto earth, took the form, took the the aspects of humanity, not just to bring salvation, but to bring service, to become that faithful and merciful high priest, that one who is able to help those who are being tempted. Why? Because he himself has suffered. He himself was tempted. We have a God who can relate to us, who's empathetic, who's been in that spot, who's been in that darkness. That's what Christ can accomplish because of that identity that he adopted. 
literally when, when the author is saying he's able to help those, literally the word he's using uh, uh, is used in the context of running to the cry of a baby. Which I will tell you, when a baby cries, you run to it, and then you run away from it, and then you run back. All right? That's how it works. You hear that cry, and this, we, we have a God who runs. He runs to our cry. He's able to help. He's a merciful and faithful high priest. Why? Because of the identity that he took on. Because he was willing to become a man who died. Suddenly, he is able to relate. He is able to serve men and women who die. So when we look at what Christ has accomplished, when we see this identity that he adopted, we need to realize, man, he didn't want to have that identity, right? He didn't want to be a dead guy. (laughs) That is not appealing in the least, but it's exactly what we needed. It's exactly what the world needed. For Christ, it wasn't a question of the position. He didn't ask himself, what position do I want? It was a question of purpose. The, The why dictated the what. He chose his identity not because it's what he wanted, but it's because what others needed. And man, that's, that's where we need to be. That's what we're called to. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to that same identity. And we can't all adopt the identity of dead guy, right? We're not always going to be in that particular spot, but we can still have that same motivation, We can still choose to adopt an identity based on not what we want, but on what others need. We can still choose to adopt an identity that will bring salvation or will bring service to the people around us. That's why Paul explained in Philippians 2, right before he talked about Christ emptying himself, he says, this is the motivation. He says, this is why Christ emptied himself, that we would do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul says we are called to that same mindset. He says this is what we're called to. He says you want to know the perfect example of this? And then he talks about Christ emptying himself and humbling himself to the point of death. He says this is where we should be. This is where we need to go. This is the identity that we need to adopt. So what's your identity? Where are you headed? What are you doing with your semester? Are you asking yourself, man, what, what do I want? Are you really asking yourself, what, where do I want to be? What do I want to accomplish? What identity do I want to adopt? Or are you asking yourself, what do others need? Are you counting others more significant than yourself? Are you looking for places where you can bring salvation? Are you looking for places where you can bring service? Are you switching that internal question from what do I want to what do others need? Because what's beautiful about this identity is that it doesn't fade. It doesn't break down. Because there will always be other people in need. At some point, that organization is going to fall apart. At some point, that company is going to close down. At some point, that relationship is going to end. But you know what? There will always be other people in need. Always. An inward-focused identity never lasts. An outward-focused identity is eternal. The identity offered to us in Jesus Christ is better. It just, it's better. To help us kind of put 
some feet on this to help us kind of see, man, where does this really go? How does this really play out? Where there's going to be a couple people that are going to share about two different opportunities this morning. We're going to hear from one of our interns, a guy named Blake, who's going to tell us about the need to bring salvation, the need to bring service overseas, faraway places. He's going to talk about the fact that we need people who are willing to take on the identity of foreigner in a strange land for the sake of bringing the gospel. And we're going to hear on a little bit of a smaller scale from one of our uh, Connect Team leaders, a girl named Maggie. And she's going to talk to us about an event that we're having this upcoming weekend. That's a local event designed to serve the people around us designed to be an outreach tool that you can bring non-believing friends to, an easy access point. Why? Because we all need that identity. We all need to be asking ourselves, not what do I want, but what do others need? What is an identity I can adopt to bring salvation and to bring service to the world around me? So let's pray. Lord, we thank you that there is a higher calling found in you than God we can't find anywhere else. Lord, we thank you that the identities that we come up with on our own, uh, we think that they're inferior. Because, God, that means that even when we falter, Lord, even when we stray, God, even when we find ourselves chasing after our own dreams and our own aspirations, God, eventually we can't. God, eventually it will fail. It It will break down. And, Lord, we thank you for that because then we are forced to look elsewhere. God, I just pray that we would be forced to look to you in those moments, when we're disappointed with that position, when we're disappointed in that relationship or that responsibility, God, I ask that every single one of us would turn our attention to you, God, to what you're calling us to, God, that identity that you're offering us to be a follower of Christ, to be someone who looks after the needs of others above the desires of his own heart. If you would take a moment right now and ask the Lord to show you, where are you putting your identity? Where are you finding your, your sense of worth, your sense of satisfaction? Ask the Lord to show you, what are you wrapping yourself up in right now? If you would take a moment, ask the Lord to just grab a hold of your heart over these next few minutes. Ask him to really push aside your doubts or your fears, uh, your, your preconceptions about what you're supposed to accomplish, about what your identity is supposed to be. Ask him that he would help soften your heart to hear from Blake, to hear from Maggie, to hear about these opportunities to, to live in a way that brings life to those around us. Ask that the Lord would speak to you through them in a minute.